Hello, I'm your host, Jennifer Matteris, and welcome to Disaster Area. Episode 2, The Hillsborough Disaster, April 15, 1989, 96 deceased, 150 to 200 injured. You'll be telling us he was a virgin next, a South Yorkshire officer to the mother of a Hillsborough victim when she told him her son didn't smoke or drink, as shared by her son-in-law Leo Fallon in ESPN 30 for 30, Hillsborough. A boy not barely in his teens is lost amongst the dying screams. A body too frail to fight for breath is drowned below a sea of death. His outstretched arm then disappears to signal 14 years of tears, as 96 souls of those who fell await the toll of the Justice Bell. The Justice Bell by Dave Kirby. Hillsborough is a disaster in two parts what happened and what happened after. What happened is that on April 15th, 1989, a tragedy occurred at the FA Cup semifinal at Hillsborough Stadium that killed 96 people and left several hundred injured. What happened after was a massive cover-up. And I said in the first episode that I'm, I'm not a big fan of conspiracies, but this was not a conspiracy. This was an actual, honest-to-goodness cover-up from the very beginning, from the word go. And it was meant to make it look as though the fans were the cause of this disaster. And they weren't, but we'll get to that. Now... Hillsborough Stadium was the home of Sheffield Wednesday Football Club. It was built in 1899, and it was upgraded for the 1966 World Cup game, but it really was not the nicest stadium in the world. A lot of people didn't really like it. Uh, there was actually a quote from one of the fans who would actually end up being a victim at Hillsborough, he basically responded to finding out that the game would be at the stadium by saying, oh, no, not that stadium. Uh, it had been there the, day, the year before, and the fans didn't like it, basically. Um, it had a 54,000-person uh, capacity, so it was very large. Um, but like I said, it was built in 1899, so housing sort of built up around it rather than it being built in a place central to transportation. As somebody who used to live in Washington, D.C., I tend to think of the Washington National Stadium, which is right next to a metro station. It's not something that you need to walk blocks and blocks to get there. But when it comes to Hillsborough, police would need to escort fans from, say, the train station or other um, places to get them safely to the stadium without you know, any sort of trouble or, or encounters with fans of the other team or whatever. Now, if you picture the pitch from up above with goals on the top and the bottom, the Leppings Lane end, which is where the Liverpool fans were assigned, would have been at the bottom. It was a bottleneck entrance from the street. Basically, if you were coming in from the street, which was Peniston Road, you would come to a curve in the road. And at that curve was 
the stadium. There were gates that were right there. And when you went through these gates, maybe about 100 feet, give or take, I'm not very good with uh, measurements, so don't quote me on that, you would get to the turnstiles. Now, to get into the turnstiles for Leppings Lane, there were only seven. There were only seven turnstiles. And so if there were a lot of people there, like this particular day, it would have been very difficult to go through. Off to the right on the right-hand side, a right-hand wall, I should say, there was a door. It was exit gate C. And exit gate C was normally not open at the beginning of a match. It was opened at the end so that people could more easily exit. But, you know, in terms of strife, times of strife, excuse me, or in times of, of heightened crowd stress, that sort of thing, it could be open to let people in. Now, normally, in years past, there had been lines that had been set up outside those gates. 1989, those lines weren't there. So people were going to have to go just through the gates and through the turnstiles and make their own way. Once you got through those turnstiles, you ended up on a concourse. It was an inner concourse. It was um, very, not very open compared to where you had been before, but it was still more open than it had been. Um, once you got through there, the very first thing that you would see very, very visibly was a big tunnel with a sign over it that had the number two. Underneath that was a sign that said standing. And to the left and right of that were signs that said B and A. Now, I don't exactly know what the B and A were for, but, uh, or the number two, I imagine that was the second entrance, but suffice it to say there were three or four really big signs that you would see as you walked into this concourse area. And so your eyes are directly looking at this concourse and looking at this tunnel. And you can see down through the tunnel. And if you can see down through that tunnel, you can see that not only is that a standing section, but it's right behind the goal. Obviously, if you're a big fan, you're going to want to go down there. So it's sort of like having a big neon sign, go here. Now, if there were a lot of people in that pen, what the police would normally do was close the doors so that nobody could go through. And that, that way they would be directed to go to the side pens. There were pens off to the left and the right, entrances to those side pens, that is. And the thing about that is, if that, is that without being directed, if you had never been to that stadium before, you wouldn't know how to find those entrances. Off to the left, to those side pens, there was no sign that said that there was a standing room entrance over there. There was a refreshment sign and a ladies' room sign. There wasn't an entrance sign for the standing room section. Off to the right, there was a sign, but it was on a, kind of on a pole that, depending on where you stood, could be hidden behind the stairs to the upper level. So it really wasn't that easy to see that entrance either. But that is the way that you would normally go if you were being directed away from that middle tunnel. Now once you went down 
that particular tunnel, if you did go down that tunnel, you would go down this sloping floor. And once you got to the bottom, there was a gate that divided the area before you into two pens. You could go into the left pen or the right pen, the left being pen four and the right being pen three. And in either one of those, you would see that there were barriers, kind of these kind of uh, bars that were up inter intermittently to kind of break up the crush, just to kind of make sure that the crowd wasn't squeezed together. Now around these pens was the real problem. They were six foot high spiked railings all the way around. So if you wanted to say, get out of there, you had to wriggle your way out of the crowd and go all the way back to the tunnel. And of course, the exit to the tunnel is half the size of the entrance because you have that gate dividing the two pens, making it difficult for you to get out. This was not a very safe solution to kind of the problems that soccer, or excuse me, football was having in the 80s in regards to hooliganism and that sort of thing. But this is what the standing room section had at its disposal. So they had these, these big, these big uh, fences up. Now, when you were in the Leppings Lane end, you could see off to the right the police control box in the corner of the stadium. The police control box was sort of a, a center of calm and order. It was very quiet in there as opposed to outside the ground where you, outside of the police box where you had all of these fans who were cheering and yelling and supporting their teams. And what you had as the lead officer in control were exterior cameras, uh, cameras of the inside of the ground, cameras of the outside of the ground. You had a place where there weren't 50,000 fans yelling, 50,000 fans screaming, fighting, you know, calling each other names, that sort of thing. So this was a place where the person in charge could stand, that they wouldn't have to deal with the crowd, where they could make a decision without being disturbed, with a, with a good frame of mind. At least that was the theory. Now, the Leppings Lane end that we're talking about, 24,000 people would be going through this entrance. There were seven turnstiles there, like I said. And I will say that an investigation uh, later found that if those going through the turnstiles that particular day went through at an orderly pace, they would have been going through until 40 minutes after kickoff. That's how few entrances they had available to them and how many people were there. Now, the pens behind these goals, they were known for being a little bit of a, of a, a threat to crushing. It had actually happened there before. In 1981, there was an FA Cup semifinal game between Tottenham Hotspur and Wolverhampton Wanderers. Now, if you had been there, and you had gone to, had tickets for Leppings Lane, you would have gone through the outer gates before you got to the turnstiles. 
And there had been oppressive people before the turnstiles, basically people pushing, trying to get through them, but of course there's not a lot of room there. People were being waved through without being checked for tickets. Uh, there were people who, you know, were trying to say, you know, you want to check my ticket, and the police said, no, no, go ahead. And of course, that time, too many people went down behind the goal into pens three and four. Like I said, it's a visibility issue. You walk in, you see a big sign that says, you know, standing, you go that way. People were getting crushed in the pens that day, and they began to climb over the fence. The fences. Uh, people actually, uh, police were actually allowing people who had climbed over to sit quietly around the perimeter of the pitch. So when you look at video of that day, you see a lot of people just very, very nicely sitting, you know, cross-legged on the side of the pitch. Uh, police did state that it was likely there would have been deaths without intervention. There were some injuries, but there were a lot of people who were very basically well-behaved, and they sat on the sidelines, and they did, um, they were, luckily, everybody was, was out and sitting on the sidelines, and not dead. But the, uh, the chairman of the club said that that was a nonsense, and that's perfect. Professor uh, Phil Scraton, who is going to be a big name later on in, in, in this discussion. But basically, the, the chairman of the club said, you know, people wouldn't have died. That's ridiculous. That can't happen. Now, the security was under the jurisdiction of the Hammerton Road Police Station, which was about five minutes away from the stadium. They were being led that particular day by Chief Superintendent David Duckenfield, who had only started three weeks earlier. The position had previously been held by Brian Mole, and he had been in charge of the matches since the early 80s. He was very well-versed in policing matches. He knew about the atmosphere, the fans, the game. He was really well known for knowing what he was doing. But he had been removed three weeks earlier due to a scandal that had occurred six months ago. Uh, a young officer had been lured to a police station. He had been taken by a pair of armed robbers wearing balaclavas. He was tied up. His pants were pulled down. A photo was taken, and it all turned out to be other police officers playing a prank on him. Now, a complaint was made on his behalf from his wife, I believe, and news of that scandal leaked to the media when the investigation into it began. Four officers were fired, two were reduced in rank, two were fined, and Brian Mole, who had nothing to do with it, was transferred to another station, which put Duckenfield into the chief superintendent's position. Now, he almost immediately gave an impression he had little to no football experience or knowledge. There was a pre-game briefing two days before the game, and he said that the game was between Liverpool and Nottinghamshire, not Nottingham Forest. That may have been a slip of the tongue, but if he knew a little bit more about football, maybe he wouldn't have had that slip of the tongue. So, given events which were about to occur, it was probably more likely he didn't know much about football. Now, the day of the game, at 10 a.m., the police had a briefing uh, at the North Stand. 
They all gathered, and he stood before them, and he spoke of how to react when arresting people, monitoring the ground for offenses, disciplining for offenses, but nothing on crowd safety. Uh, and a lot of the officers kind of made sort of comments that made it seem like he liked the sound of his own voice, that he was very talkative, and he kind of went on. But he really wasn't saying anything, or at least not anything new. When it came to the crowds, uh, one of the things that they were concerned about was alcohol. Um, you know, it's a little bit different, you know, in Britain than it would be in America, say. So, you know, there were some drunk fans, um, and officers did uh, notice them. But according to them, it wasn't really bad enough to call them drunk and disorderly. You know, you had pubs and off-licenses in the area around uh, the stadium, and, and people would go and, and get a beer or go with friends beforehand to kind of kill some time. But before they could go into the grounds, if they had a beer on them, they had to pour it out or they had to finish it off. Basically, the same sort of thing that they would have to do in America. Now, when the crowd started to arrive, it was about, um, they were starting to arrive pretty slow at first. Um, the kickoff was about 3 o'clock, so about quarter after 2, the crowd was pretty well-behaved and good-humored, but there weren't really a lot of them. It was going very slowly. Um, there was a comment in the 30 to 30 Hillsborough episode where one of the um, men in charge of the turnstile said that he had kind of figured it out, how, at the rate at which people were going through that turnstile. So that was pretty slow. At about 2.20, constables detained a man for jumping the turnstiles and took him to the police room to be processed. By the time they came back, it was bedlam. People were starting to get more, more energetic and, and a little more frustrated that they weren't already in the grounds. Now, like I said before, the, the, the stadium before, in the years before, they had had queues set up outside the turnstiles to keep order out into the street, but not that year. Uh, you know, Duck and Field was new. He may not have known about it. He may not have thought they needed it. And when it came to the pens, uh, even the announcer, John Motson, when they were off air, was making comments uh, uh, in regard to the fact that the center pens, pens three and four, already looked full compared to the others. Because the others, the side pens, you could see cement and you could see the metal barriers. But in the center pens, you really couldn't see that. They were just so packed at that point. At 2.30, the crowd is packed so tightly in those pens that getting down to the front just isn't feasible anymore. It's not going to happen. Many policemen at that particular point in time were sitting in the gymnasium drinking coffee and just kind of waiting for the game to start. And that's when the atmosphere began to change and they were deployed to left and claim. About 2.35, people are being pulled through the turnstiles by the police to relieve the crush outside. Basically, people are pushing forward, and the people who are getting crushed are the people closest to the turnstiles. It's basically a matter of getting them out of the way. Uh, there was a one fan, Stephanie Jones. Uh, she was 18 years old at the time, and she was there with her brother and his girlfriend. And she said you couldn't see the turnstiles. That's how thick the crowd was. Now, at times like this, when the crowd is, is, is crunched together like that, or when you're having some sort of crowd troubles, the kickoff can be delayed. But they didn't really see about stopping the kickoff or delaying the kickoff at that point. 
on the radio, officers outside were starting to become a little frantic. And, you know, fair warning, this is, uh, you know, not safe for work language. But one of the officers went on the radio and was saying, for fuck's sake, for fuck's sake, open these gates. If you don't open these gates, people will die. For fuck's sake, please open these gates. And that sort of got everybody's attention. But if, because, of course, this is a work phone you don't curse on work phones and you don't curse on police phones so that was sort of kind of giving the impression that things were getting very bad outside as of 240 uh officers described that there was a big nothingness coming from the police control box nobody was really saying anything or ordering them to do anything in regards to this crowd superintendent marshall who was in charge outside the ground radio into Chief Superintendent Duckenfield to request authorization to open exit gate C, let a few people in, take some of that pressure off of those turnstiles. And they would be allowed in from the back of the crowd to relieve pressure from those in the front of the crowd. At this point, when you look at the, the um, security camera footage, which I have, it looks as though the crowd has a current, that people are moving and and kind of being pushed into different directions. It kind of moves like a like a mass rather than individuals. And it's very frightening to see because you get the impression that people are not moving of their own accord. They really have no way of moving of their own accord. So at that point, Duck and Field authorizes the opening of the gate to let people in. The gate, exit gate C, which, as I said before, was on the right side, on the right wall, is opened at 248, at 252, and at 259. They open it up, they let a bunch of people in, and then they close it back up again. But they had to keep doing it, because, obviously, the crush was just as bad outside. Um, but they had to do it to keep people safe. The reasoning was that they wanted to keep from having death and injury outside the grounds, so they would let people in and they would kind of take the pressure off. The fans entered without any guidance whatsoever from police. Now, they already knew that those main pens in the middle, pens three and four, were pretty, pretty packed. So what they could have done was they could have closed the doors to that tunnel and had some officers directing people to the side pens, where the signs were not really that easy to see. But the police didn't direct anybody to anywhere else. They didn't close the doors to the tunnel, and they didn't take tickets either. The people actually said, do you want to see our tickets? But they just waved them on. Now, like I said, in previous matches, those doors had been closed, but in this case, they weren't. The kickoff came at 3 o'clock. Um, Liverpool was in red. Nottingham Forest was in white. And a lot of people in Leffings Lane say from the very beginning, they really didn't even know the game had started. Uh, that's how busy it was in those pens. The crowds in those pens pushed forward very quickly. And normally the, the crowd would ease off. You know, you could spread out and, as Professor Scrayton says, you could find your own level, quote-unquote. But with these six-foot-high spiked railings that were around these pens, you really couldn't move anywhere. You were stuck where you were. And so people were really, 
really starting to lose consciousness. They were starting to uh, be completely unable to move. There were people who said that they were turned around at some point and they weren't even facing the field. They weren't even facing the pitch. They couldn't see the game at all. Um, people said that they started to lose consciousness, that ever, the world started to pull into a pinpoint um, of light where they just couldn't really see what was going on. One man described that he started to see himself in a perfect circle of people. At about 3.04, Liverpool player Peter Beardsley made a goal attempt and he hit the crossbar of the goal with the ball. At that point, inside the pens, the crowd convulsed. That was the word um, one of the, the, the people uh, who was interviewed used, convulsed. And what that convulsion was, was a barrier bar, one of the bars that was up in the pen, snapping and collapsing. And the crowd sort of went with that. You know, at this point, people are passing out slipping down in the crowd. Somebody said if, if Beardsley had scored rather than just hit the bar, it may have been a lot worse in there. Um, outside, people are, are taking photographs of the... Um, photographers are taking pictures of the crowd being pressed against the front of the pens. Uh, one of the officers, a, um, a Constable McLaughlin, called, said it looked like fish in a trawler net. I've seen the pictures. I mean, you can look them up online and you can see these pictures, and they're they're awful because you know full well just looking at some of these people that they're already dead. Um, they, you know, there's nothing about their color or, you know, there's no blood. It's just the way that they their faces are and the way that they look. It's It's not pretty. It's not... It's not you know, death is never pretty, but that's pretty bad. Um, and at first the police really didn't do anything. Uh, one officer told a man to get off the crush barrier after the, that man climbed up to escape from the pressure. Uh, there were reports of officers throwing fans back into the pens, uh, probably attributing the behavior to hooliganism rather than crushing. Um, hooliganism was a big problem with football in the 80s, especially in, in Britain. Um, they had sort of a, a reputation for bad behavior, and especially Liverpool, um, due to the Heysel disaster, which happened four years earlier in Belgium. There was a European Cup final between Liverpool and Juventus, which was a an Italian team, and it uh, left 39 football fans, mostly Italian and Juventus fans, dead. Um, there were they were basically in these standing areas, um, these Juventus fans on one side of a chain link fence and these Liverpool fans on the other, and some sort of arguments got on and, and the Liverpool fans sort of charged through the chain link fence and the Juventus fans and Italian fans, these, these fans in this other area ran towards the other side of that particular area and at a wall and they were crushed against it and then it collapsed and that's how those people died. So they really didn't have a good reputation, you know, football fans, but in particular Liverpool fans. Um, but in the pens, what was happening wasn't hooliganism. Now, the people who died in the pens, 
they died either of crush asphyxiation or traumatic asphyxiation. And what's the difference? Well, crush, crush asphyxiation is the result of a slow, gradual pressure. Um, it's basically, um, you know, you stand against a wall and somebody leans against you and leans against you and leans against you and leans against you and, against you and it takes a while. Um, traumatic asphyxiation, and that was what most of the deaths were, uh, 68 of the deaths, is the result of a sudden impact. Now, at Hillsborough, most likely that was caused by the collapse of the barrier and the resulting surge forward. Normally that's from, um, you know, say you were in your garage working on a car and the jack falls and it falls on you and you, you suffocate. That's usually what that's from. But in this case, it was the surge of this crowd forward, traumatically asphyxiating 68 people. The game was stopped at 3.06 p.m. It was very hard not to stop it. People were spilling out onto the pitch. Fans were being pulled up from the terraces, these, these pens, into the upper level by people, by their arms. They were basically lifting up an arm, you know, if, if only one of their arms was working, or both of their arms, and they were being pulled up by fans above. Now, that were, there were only small gates at the front of both pens that people could escape out of. They were literally very small doors in these pens. Stephanie Jones, who was there with her brother and her um, his girlfriend, was pulled out by an officer. And you can actually see her in video um, of the event. Um, she's standing there. She's wearing a denim shirt, denim jeans, and she's got blonde hair, and she's crying. Um, she doesn't know where her, her brother is, and she doesn't know where his girlfriend is. Um, and they both actually actually died in the disaster. Uh, a lot of people were doing what they could to help those trapped inside. I mean, fans were going, uh, you know, out of their way to do what they could to help other fans in there. Um, but it was packed so tightly that it was very hard to pull anybody out. Um, one officer described that he was looking for people, he was looking for two feet that had the same pair of socks on them, because then he would know. That was the same person, so that's how he would try to pull people out. Um, but fans were fans were helping, individual police were helping, but the problem was coming with, with senior police and sort of the organization as opposed to individual police. A lot of the fans, though, were doing what they could. They could be seen on video pulling at the gates to try and get them down. Some of them were carrying the injured or dying fans out of the pens onto the pitch and off into the stadium's gymnasium on these advertising signs from the pitch's sidelines. They didn't have, you know, they didn't have um, any sort of medical equipment with them, but they had these advertising holdings, these big signs, and they would put them on and, and carry them off. But this is, this is actually later seen as a possible contributor to the deaths of some of these people as they weren't being placed in the recovery position by experienced emergency personnel. That was an entirely different problem. Um, ambulances were arriving outside, but a major, sort of a major catastrophe, they weren't really alerted to that until about 3.15, which doesn't actually help a lot of these people. Um, ambulances began to arrive outside, and they were actually backing up onto Peniston Road. Um, ambulance drivers were, were actually, you know, some of them were leaving their vehicles to try to get victims, but they weren't leaving their keys, so they were boxing in these other ambulances. Now, only three ambulances actually went onto the pitch to go get 
um, people who had, um, you know, this, um, people who were injured or victims. The first arrived at 3.15, the second at 3.20, and the last at 3.30. And those times would actually become important later on. Now, there were people, for example, um, you know, who had to make some tough choices in regards to these ambulances. Uh, Trevor Hicks was there with his two daughters, Vicki, who was 15, and Sarah, who was 19, and his wife, Jenny. Now, Jenny was in the North Stand, but the two girls were in one of the, the pens, pen three, I believe. And Trevor was actually in one of the side pens. Now, when all of this started to happen, he went out onto the pitch, and he found his two daughters almost side by side on the pitch. And he actually had a choice. The first ambulance to arrive, they were able to put Vicky into it. And Sarah was still on the pitch. So as he said, it's sort of the low point in your life. You have to decide which child you go with. And he ended up getting in the ambulance and going with Vicky while Sarah stayed on the pitch. And in the end, both, both girls actually did end up dying. The police response um, was heavily criticized almost immediately. Um, you could see fans in news reports, people who are coming up to reporters and people with cameras and saying, you know, you are the eyes of the world. You, you, can, you have to tell people, you know, they just let us in. They didn't even take our tickets and look what happened. Um, one fan, Brian Anderson, who had been there with his father, he escaped from the pens. Um, he was actually, you know, pretty well crushed himself. He said one of his arms just was not, was so crushed it wasn't really working at the time. And he went looking for his father to try and see if he could find him to see that he could, you know, tell him that he was okay. He found his father's body on the concourse with some other bodies surrounded by police. And he went inside this circle of police to get to his father. And these police were doing nothing to try and save the people they encircled. They had been ordered to stay there and surround these people, these bodies, and, and keep people away, and they were doing so. Uh, and that was the thing. People, uh, police were being ordered to position themselves in different places, and they were they were following orders. Um, some police were ordered to position themselves in a line across the field to prevent Nottingham Forest fans from misinterpreting the problem as hooliganism and starting fights. Which, you know, that could be seen as already angry fans as the police really doing nothing. Um, you know, individual police were doing a lot, but, oh, you know, as a group, they were sort of being ordered to do different things, and, and it was really, you know, the confusion of the moment. Now, in the control box, you have the Football Association Chief Executive Graham Kelly arrives. He shows up with his assistant. And he asks um, Chief Constable, uh, Chief Superintendent David Duckenfield, what's happening? Now, David Duckenfield ordered the gate opened. He knows that he ordered the gate go opened. But instead of saying that he ordered the gate be opened and this is what happened, Duckenfield claims that fans broke the gate and pushed in and went down the tunnel. This story filters out to announcer John Motson, the man who earlier had noticed that these pens were pretty packed, and he shares it on air. And this story is already immediately discrediting victims. It starts to carry, and you start to hear it in news stories. You start to see it in other reporters. And this is where what happened and what happened after is divided. This is where the second part of this disaster occurs. Now, the dead were housed in a makeshift morgue in the Hillsborough gym. Uh, there were 12 people who were 
and pronounced dead at a hospital, and others were already at the gym. There were 22 victims under the age of 18. Uh, the youngest, John Paul Gavuli, was only 11. Uh, his cousin, Stephen Gerrard, would actually grow up to become the captain of the Liverpool team. Um, but at that point, um, families who had been searching in local hospitals and had been looking around and had been trying to find their families were being brought back to the stadium to identify their loved ones. They were basically taken to a room and they were shown this wall of Polaroids. Um, obviously, they're Polaroids. They're not very good photos. Um, and they weren't separated by age or sex or race. Now, in the last episode about the Hartford Circus Fire, I, I mentioned that, you know, in the morgue there, they had separated them. You know, there were men and women, there were um, children and adults, and they had separated them. So if the, you went in and said, you know, I'm looking for my little boy, they wouldn't send you looking at, like, women, and, you know, you would only look at the little boy, so you, your trauma wasn't exacerbated. In this case, you were just looking at a wall of pictures of dead bodies. Um, Trevor and Jenny Hicks came back to the field, um, back to the stadium to look for Sarah. They already knew that Vicki had passed away in the hospital. And Jenny had to look through all these pictures and she couldn't find Sarah. And she sells, tells how you know, she she looked through all these pictures and said she couldn't find Sarah, and the officer just said, look again, love. And that was when she actually found Sarah in those pictures. When you found your child, or your your husband, or your, your, your father, or whoever it was that you were looking for, um, they were brought out on gurneys in body bags to be viewed. So they would bring out whoever it was you were looking for, and you would identify them face to face. Um, uh, people like um, mothers like Margaret Aspinall and Doreen Jones, um, whose sons had, had gone to this game, uh, they wanted to cuddle their sons. They wanted to give them hugs and kisses and say goodbye to them. But they were not allowed to touch the bodies, and they were told that these bodies are now the property of the coroner. Of the coroner, excuse me. Which, it seems pretty cold to say that to somebody who has just lost their child. At this point, officers would take statements from the families and friends afterward, uh, and they were deliberately asking about alcohol use from the beginning. And that was the sort of thing they were asking. You know, were you having, you know, did you go to the pub? Did you have, you know, did you have a beer on the way here? Did your parents have a beer on the way here? They were even asking that about families, family members who weren't even at the game. Um, you know, as I quoted at the beginning of, of this uh, this podcast, the um, one family um, they asked, "Well, does your son, does your son smoke? No. Does your son drink? No." And the officer said, "He'll be telling us he's a virgin next." And you can't imagine. I can't, I can't even imagine what it would be like to have somebody say that to your face right after your son had died in such a tragic event. One of the, the um, fans, Brian Anderson, the, the one who found his father outside in the concourse, deceased, uh, when he was asked about drink, uh, about alcohol, he basically told them, you know, you opened the gates. 
um, you know, drunk fans didn't tear down the gate. You opened it up and let us in, and this is what's the result. But, uh, you know, as he said, they didn't want to hear that. Um, at this point, there's the coroner. The coroner, Stephen Popper. Coroner Stephen Popper decides that he's going to um, attend these, these um, bodies, this morgue at the uh, Hillsborough Stadium. But what he decides from the very start, based on what he's being told by officers, is that he's going to take blood alcohol levels of every victim. Every single one, even the children. Now, this doesn't really happen in accidents. People don't take blood alcohol content on victims. You know, maybe if, you know, as, as Professor Scrayton points out, you know, if you're the driver, maybe, or if you're the... You know, if, if, if you are somebody who was was flying a plane, they may take your blood alcohol content, but not the victims. Um, and later on, evidence would be found that not only were these blood alcohol contents being taken, but everyone who had a blood alcohol content that wasn't, wasn't zero also had a criminal records check done on them as well, which seems a bit excessive you know, for victims of a disaster. Uh, Coroner Popper took a cutoff time of 3.15 for the inquests um, because that was when the first ambulance arrived on the pitch. It really, there's really no basis for it. Um, you know, it's said in, in, a, in a couple of, of the documentaries that I watched and a few things that I read. There's really, I mean, there's really no basis for them to to say as much, um, you know, to choose that, that day, that time, excuse me, and say, well, that's it. But he did, and it came back later um, on as something that's uh, information that was really um, negative towards the victims and the families. Uh, when it came to the police speaking to the media about what went on, it becomes very clear, you know, um, in hindsight, that they were already trying to kind of cover up for um, the police, trying to divert attention from what may have gone on in regards to the police screwing up. You had uh, two of the biggest, uh, most prominent faces um, in regards to this. They show up in a lot of the news stories, um, news interviews uh, in regards to the Hillsborough disaster. Our Chief Constable Peter Wright and Police Federation spokesman Paul Midup. Uh, both of them are very vocal about the the things which supposedly went on in regards to drunk fans. Paul Midup is actually in a lot of them, and he's he's very, um, you know, I don't want to. I, I, when I say he's not very attractive to watch, I don't mean physically. I mean just in terms of knowing what happened, you know, well, knowing what actually happened, and hearing him say things like you know, that people without tickets were diving under police horses. And when you see that, they're either mental or they're drunk. And he was saying things that were very sort of negative to the fans, but nothing really questioning, you know, saying, well, we'll find out if the police did anything wrong later on. He really never implies that the police ever did anything wrong. It's all these crazy fans. And he and an, and an MP named Irving Patnick, uh, said a lot of the same things which would show up later in the sun. Now, this is one of the most notorious parts of what happened after, and 
what happened is that the Sun newspaper had a story published on April 19th, 1989. When you went to go and get this newspaper, what you would see is a big, a big um, headline on the front that said, The Truth. Now, you know, if you see something like that, you know something bad is coming. Um, right next to the truth, you see Superintendent Marshall, a picture of of him on the uh, on the front of the cover. He was the one who was in charge outside of the ground. And underneath the truth, you had headlines that said, Some fans picked pockets of victims. Some fans urinated on the brave cops. And some fans beat up PC giving life kiss. When you read the inside, when you read the, the, the um, articles inside, you also see an allegation that one group of fans saw that the shirt of a girl trampled to death had ridden up, and they called out, throw her up here and we'll fuck her, to the cop trying to revive her. There were also those pictures that I mentioned earlier of, of the fans in the pens. There were pictures of those fans being crushed to death in, in the newspaper. Very graphic pictures. Uh, they would have been startling to see if you had just opened up the newspaper and saw it, and they weren't blurred out or anything like that. I've seen visions online where they're blurred out, but they weren't blurred out in the sun. You could see everything. And I know from my own experience of, of looking through the, the um, you know, survivors' pictures and this sort of thing that I actually recognized one or two of the people who inevitably passed away in the pens in those pictures. So I can imagine just being one of those families and flipping through the newspaper and you see um, this picture of your daughter or your son and they're clearly deceased and you know they're dead and there they are. Um, there were things that had been um, uh, printed in, in the newspaper. You know, I was robbed by cop yobs and there was kind of a little... Um, um, a little line that was up in the corner of most pages and it said thought cop of shame it's kind of the cop end which is uh, what that means when it says cop it's not c-o-p it's k-o-p as in the cop end of the stadium now pc paul midup the one that i mentioned earlier um he stated that people behaved badly but he claimed it was only a small minority and you kind of get the impression from the article that it's kind of like an afterthought that he adds that um, he's telling these stories about, well, well, you know, these, these, these hooligans are doing this and these fans are doing that, but you know, it was only a small minority. It was only some of these people, but you know, the ones who did, oh, let's talk about them. Um, I apologize if I'm making this a little more, um, subjective than I, than I might previous, might have in previous, uh, episodes, but, um, it really is kind of frustrating to to read this article. There's a reason that this particular issue um, kind of ruined the sun, the sales of the sun in Merseyside, which was the county that, that Liverpool is in. It really, you cannot get it there basically anymore. Not a lot of people buy it. Um, you know, there were claims in this article that, that one ambulance worker was injured so badly he needed treatment at a hospital. And, you know, the first four pages and the last three pages of the issue were Hillsborough stories. A lot of, you know, tragic stuff. And, I mean, most of the, the stories are basically, you know, um, stories of, 
the people who were lost and 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 fan and uh, players expressing their grief but the truth is what you see on the front page you know the big headline and like i said it's no wonder that liverpool fans and people in liverpool will not buy the sun anymore it does not sell there uh Calvin McKenzie, who was the Sun's editor at the time, was the one who came up with that headline. The writer of the article himself said that he did not put that on there. And the reason being, of course, that he wasn't writing about these allegations as if they were true. He was writing about them as if they were allegations, which, you know, cops were being quoted as sharing these stories, but they weren't analyzing whether or not they were true. They were just sharing them. And so it wasn't the truth. So, you know, he really didn't, he really didn't apologize for it for a very long time. He made excuses and, and he's to this day, he, he just does not get a lot of, of, um, positive response out of, out of the families, out of the Hillsborough families in regards to this. Now, within 48 hours um, after the disaster, Lord Justice Taylor was appointed by the government to put out a report on the causes behind the disaster. And he made a point of, you know, he was very um, into going going and, and, and looking at all the information. And, and you know, he, he, he really um, did what he had to do to, to research this. But at the same time, the statements for the police, um, for the South Berkshire police, which we'll get to, were something that were kind of um, questionable. We'll get to that, though. Um, but one of the one of the important things is um, Graham Games. Graham Games was a health and safety executive, and basically, what Graham Games was there to do was to look at things from a very from a kind of a mathematical point of view. Um, he was looking at things like the influx of people through the gate and the turnstiles, how they worked, how accurate they were, how many were allocated to each part of the ground. He wasn't looking at behavior. He was looking at numbers, cold, hard numbers. And the Liverpool supporters had fewer turnstiles. There was 44% of the capacity for them, but only 28% of available entrances. So there was going to be an issue no matter what. Um, you had seven turnstiles there for 10,100 people, which is not a lot. He also, like I said, he looked at the influx of people through gate C, and it was 1,800 people. Now, one of the, the accusations that the police had was that these drunk fans were also ticketless. And so the fact that they were going through the gate, um, you know, they were ticketless. They shouldn't have been there, and therefore they were the ones who killed these people in the pens. But Mr. Games found that the influx was similar to the capacity of the terraces. So it really doesn't seem as though they were all ticketless fans. They were more than likely mostly ticket, mostly ticketed. They all had tickets and they just were not being taken. Lord Justice Taylor released his report on August 4th, 1989, and it heavily criticized the police. Now, I found that individual police, like I said before, individual police were heroic. They were doing what they could. But it also saved its harshest words for Duckenfield, for David Duckenfield. Um, he had been suspended at the time with full pay. And the report said that he froze. 
uh, as one reporter in the in the um, 30 for 30 documentary said uh, he was paid not to freeze that was what he was paid he was you know it's perfectly human to freeze in that situation but that was not what he was there to do he was there to be the level-headed one and he did not do that the report stated that there was no effective leadership and there was a quote that said basically duck and field's capacity to take decisions seemed to collapse uh, there were different sections of the report entitled lack of effective monitoring blunder on opening the gates and the crush not recognized so basically the lord justice taylor report tore the cops a new one um it really didn't soften the blow at all but in august of 1990 the director of public prosecutions decided not to bring criminal charges against any individual group or body on the grounds of insufficient evidence that is also a quote for 30 for 30 from 30 for 30 um it's, you know, I can imagine it would be something that would frustrate the families um, seeing something like that, you know, um, that there would be no criminal charges against anybody. At this time, there, there was the inquest that was going on, and it was the longest running inquest in English legal history. Like I said before, uh, Colonel Popper introduced a cutoff time of 3.15 p.m. on all evidence. Anyone who had died after 3.15 p.m., no other factors were taken in, into consideration. Um, there were a lot of families that were angry by this. Um, Ann Williams, uh, the mother of Kevin Williams, argued about this until her death. She found evidence that showed that her son was still showing signs of life, even when the third ambulance arrived at 3.30. Um, there was some confusion um, in regards to the man who was giving him um, CPR and, and breathing for him um, at the time had still found a pulse on him when the ambulance arrived, but there was confusion about the third ambulance even being there, I guess, and um, so uh, it, it, it was basically a lot of confusion about ambulances and, and when they arrived, but the, 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 what it boils down to basically is that the 315 cutoff was heavily disputed and questioned. Every victim's blood alcohol level was read out in court at the inquest and printed in the newspaper, which you can imagine. Another thing that kind of subtly uh, points a finger at these victims. You know, look at all these victims. They're all drunk. You know, some of them are drunk. And, you know, it's the drunk ones that were the cause of these things. On March 28, 1991, the names of the victims and the verdicts in regards to their death were announced in the inquest and they were all ruled accidental deaths which it was kind of a low blow for the families they wanted justice and this was not justice in in march of 1993 uh, the last victim tony bland um, he was 18 when he was seriously injured in hillsborough and he had actually been in a vegetative state for four years um, there was a court case and he was finally allowed to, to have his life support removed, and he passed away. And he was number 96 of the victims. Now, in 1996, um, Professor Scraton, Professor Philip Scraton, who's the author of the, the, uh, the Truth, a book about the Hillsborough disaster, one of probably the book on the Hillsborough disaster, um, he finds out about um, an interview with a, a, an officer who had been at Hillsborough who had been put under pressure to kind of clean up his account, to sanitize his account of what happened there. Uh, his word, sanitize. Uh, 
um, he met with the officer. He got in touch with him, and he met with him. And the officer said, basically, you know, the fans weren't angels. They're not perfect. But the police produced a story. They decided what the story was going to be, and then they made it happen. The officer met with Professor Scraton uh, two more times after that. And on the third occasion, the officer excused himself. Um, he went out to his car, and he came back with a box file with his statement in it from the, uh, from the Hillsborough disaster. His statement had something like 50 lines taken out of it, just crossed right out, and phrases added to it. And there was a, a cover letter on there that used the phrase review and alteration. And that was a phrase that Professor Scraton latched onto, this review and alteration of statements. Now, the next step in this, this uh, in what happened after uh, was Lord Justice Stuart Smith. Lord Justice Stuart Smith was a senior appeal court judge, and he was appointed to undertake a scrutiny of the evidence to look at new evidence and at evidence already known. Professor Scraton had, had, these, had this proof of these review and alteration of statements, and he was going to show Lord Justice Stuart Smith with the intention that, you know, they would have this new evidence and they could get a new inquest, a new trial, whatever. But Lord Justice Stuart Smith kind of made it abundantly clear that he was not going to be much of an ally, if you even want to call it that. Um, he was arriving to meet with these families, and he was speaking outside um, in front of the press. Uh, and he was asking where the Hillsborough families were. And somebody, you know, kind of um, responded to him, and he, he responded back, it's not like Liverpool fans to turn up at the last minute. And, the, you know, like it was a joke. And the fans, the families were, were very offended by that. Um, Margaret Aspinall, whose son James died there um, at Hillsborough, uh, is in the 3430 documentary, um, which I'm sorry he references, but I really liked it. Um, she basically was very angry and said, you know, her, her, her and her husband had been waiting up there an hour. You know, he, he's down there making light of this very serious disaster, which is just appalling. Um, but once he got upstairs and he was talking to these families, he was, he, all of them said that he was very condescending to them. Um, he told them that they would need new evidence and, you know, Professor Scraton was kind of standing there while saying, yes, we have these statements and, and he kind of dismissed it and said, oh, you know, well, that's not really new, is it? Or, you know, kind of that sort of attitude. And he was very, uh, he, he, um, Professor Scraton had brought the officer with him that he had gotten this statement from, and, and he was very hostile to the to the officer. He, he um, Scraton called him on it too and told him that he was being very rude, which which Stuart Smith was not a very big fan of. He did not like appreciate being called on that. In February of 1998, uh, a Home Secretary Jack Straw read out Stuart Smith's decision in Parliament, which was basically that there was no new evidence and therefore no reason to proceed. Um, but that wasn't going to stop Professor Phil Scraton. Uh, he went to the House of Lords reading room to go through filed documents regarding the disaster, hoping that he could find more of these statements. Now, there was a kind of a contrast uh, between the setting and the documents, and I kind of 
like I said, I, I like 30 for 30 Hillsborough. If you get a chance to watch it, it is on, on Netflix and it is uh, very well done. Uh, but there's, there's a contrast in this particular um, scene. If it was a movie, it would be kind of comical. Um, the reading room, you know, obviously the House of Lords reading room, it's formal, it's tidy, it's elegant. You have these kind of heavy wooden tables and, and a, you know, and this librarian, it's very quiet and loud and, and, and that sort of thing. It's, it's probably exactly like you imagine. And when he arrived and, and came looking for his files, she kind of pointed to this big pile of boxes that were battered and torn and, when he opened them, he found statements that had been thrown in without organization, um, you know, uh, statements that were not stapled together and, and pages were missing and that sort of thing. So it really was not the most organized set of, of documents, uh, but he went through all of the boxes. Uh, Professor Scraton went through and he organized them according to, you know, each individual and and the, the different versions of each statement. And he found three versions for each one. He found the handwritten version, which was the very first version. These these officers who were there at Hillsborough that day would sit down and handwrite their statement. And then there was a typed version with edited alterations. And basically what that was was somebody had typed up these handwritten versions and then gone through and edit them edited them they and then the the third one was a final statement which was signed off by the officers so that was with the edited alterations taken out um, phrases added in whatever that was and then the officer who had written the original statement would sign off on it the review and alteration process um, was like I said the, the officers would handwrite their their accounts an editorial group of six South Yorkshire officers went through the statements and took out criticisms of the police. Basically, that was what they did. Any any part where they said, well, I really think that somebody should have been in the lead or I think somebody should have said, you know, I don't think we should have opened the gate. Anything like that was removed, was crossed out and and taken out. And these finished and edited statements were signed by the officers and then handed off to the East Midland investigators. Scraton was understandably appalled, and he wrote that up, and he added that information and that chapter to his book, The Truth, which was being released at the time. Um, at that point um, in time, the, the families arranged for a private prosecution of David Duckenfield and his assistant, Ber Bernard Murray. It was, it was really the only way they, I think, at that point, where they were really going to um, get anything in terms of a prosecution. Um, so there were two charges of manslaughter and one of neglecting to ensure the safety of people attending the game. In the end, Murray was acquitted and Duckenfield had a hung jury. And it was a blow. It was really a blow for these families. Uh, you know, they weren't really getting justice. Uh, the people, people were criticizing these families for continuing on with this and not getting over what had happened. And so it was basically like another kick to the teeth for them. Now, two days before the 20th anniversary of Hillsborough, uh, Liverpool won its first Premier League title since 1990 against Manchester City. At that game, 96 seats were left open for those who died at Hillsborough. And since the disaster, there have been no Liverpool games 
on April 15th. On the 20th anniversary of Hillsboro, April 15th, 2009, 30,000 people attended an event at a memorial event at Anfield, which was the home of the Liverpool team. The defining moment of the event came when the Secretary of State for Culture, Media, and Sport, Andy Burnham, who was a local boy, uh, and he went up to speak. And he was kind of giving the, the you know, the the prime minister and I, you know, we feel your pain and that, that sort of a speech. And, and in the middle of the speech where all of these people were being very quiet up until that point, someone shouted, shouted justice. And at that point, more people joined in and started chanting justice for the 96. And in the video of this, Burnham is very clearly moved by this. He clearly understands, you know, these people want justice. These people want something to happen for these 96 people who shouldn't have died. And after that, he went back to London and he pushed for a new investigation into Hillsborough. At that point, the Hillsborough Independent Panel formed. It was established in January 2010 to oversee release of documents related to the disaster. Now, it was chaired by the Bishop of Liverpool, so, you know, somebody trustworthy, at least in the public eye, um, who really didn't um, have um, a connection to police or anything like that, or, you know, it was somebody who, who you know, I, I imagine the media kind of looked at and said, okay, you know, here's somebody who is looking for the truth. Um, Professor Scraton was the lead author of their report, and he was a member of the nine-person panel. You know, if anybody knew um, all of that documentation and how to research, it was definitely him. Um, the panel was meant to look over the evidence and put out a report on what they found out. And Scranton says at one point in the beginning of their investigation, the phrase was used by someone, the panel in its work will not find a smoking gun. On September 12, 2012, they released a report finding that a lack of police control was the cause of the disaster, not Liverpool fans. Um, the Hillsborough Independent Panel has a website, and they released 355,000 pages of documents online, and it's growing all the time. There are, I think, 450,000 at this point. I know I, there's a lot that is on that website, and if you really want to look for things regarding the um the Hillsborough disaster that is a really good place to start um you could be there a while though um but there is a lot of documentation um you know there's the whole report which is very detailed uh the, it it basically calls out every single thing that happened and noticed noted that you know Liverpool fans didn't have anything to do with it the victims were of were killed by basically gross negligence and ineptitude, human error, just just a snowballing effect of of um, mistake after mistake on the terms of uh, on the um, on the part of the police. Um, they also had medical evidence that showed that over forty of the people could have been saved with immediate intervention. But as Margaret Aspinall pointed out, you know, yeah, forty people could have been saved, but all ninety-six people should have been saved. They should have been. This shouldn't have happened in the first place. On December of twenty twelve, the original inquest verdict um, of accidental was thrown out by the High Court. 
and in March, uh, March 31st of 2014, a new coroner's inquest began. And that's actually still ongoing. Um, you can actually go onto that website, the Hillsborough Independent Panel website, and go through all the documentation in regards to the inquest. Like I said, there's a lot of documentation on there, and it's constantly updating. There's a lot of stuff to go through, a lot of interviews, um, a lot of... Um, details and and any possible thing that you could want to know about the Hillsborough disaster is up there. Um, now, since 1994, standing room only areas have been banned in the English Premier League. And 2016 is going to be the final year that Anfield will hold a Hillsborough memorial service. Um, my feeling when it comes to Hillsborough um, and one of the reasons that I wanted to do this as one of the first disasters on disaster area is I, I, I think one of the reasons I wanted to do it is just because it fascinates me. It's, it's all human error. It's all gross. Like I said, it's all gross negligence. It's all clearly not only um, mistakes by people, you know, at the time, but also mistakes in the aftermath, just people covering up and covering up and covering up. And I am not somebody who likes to read about cover-ups. And it's really frustrating to read about Hillsborough and, and watch documentaries about Hillsborough and see the way that people pass the buck and people try to blame the fans and people try to say that the police weren't doing anything wrong. And, and there's so much about it that I think is very timely today, especially considering, you know, the amount of police brutality in the news and, and the way that making a murder has gone on public, on, 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 social media has kind of gone around, you know, people are talking about police and, 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 you know, what corruption can do and, and, and how it's, how this sort of police brutality and police corruption and, and, um, these sorts of things can end up with people being hurt or killed. And that's something that that's um, really interests me about Hillsborough. This is a case where these people should have gotten justice 25 years ago, and they didn't, and they're still fighting. And I find that an admirable, seriously admirable, for them to keep going and keep going and to keep going to try and get justice for their family members and the people who they lost and they didn't have to lose. And they are doing what they have to do. And in the face of, of, of people who are saying, you know, give it up, give it a rest. Just, you don't have to do this anymore. And they keep going. I respect them and I, I, I wish them all the best. I really hope that something comes out of this. Because when you see the pictures of what happened that day, when you see the pictures of of people stuck behind the fences and being pressed against the fences. When you see people that you knew were dead in, in those pens, I mean, there should be justice. And, uh, you know, I, I wish them well. And I, I, I really hope that, that they do get some sort of, uh, you know, a conviction, a, a, an arrest, something. It's You kind of want somebody to go to jail for this. The more that you read about this, this disaster and the more you hear about it, the more you want somebody to get punished, to get an actual punishment for this. So, like I said, the inquest is still going. Um, 
in regards to the Hillsboro Independent panel, if you want to check it out, the the website has up to date um, information and up to date documentation. It's a really great resource. Um, also, like I said, the 3430 documentary about Hillsboro is on is on Netflix, and it's probably the best 30 for 30 episode of all of them. And I, I, I do like documentaries about sports, so I do watch those as well. So, um, but that's probably my favorite one, you know, not even just because it's about disaster, but because it's very well made. And um, it's, it's a really interesting disaster because it, it, it's, it's a disaster that, you know, it's not a natural disaster. It's not, um, you know, it's something that is completely human. And it's, I think that's what makes it terrifying and upsetting and and you know I, I hope I hope that there's a, a happy ending or well maybe not a happy ending at least at least a, a positive one somewhere along the line until next time stay safe <laughs>